Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the Startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being a tech CFO. In this episode, we're going to talk to Patrick Hugendike, leading portfolio CFO based in the US. Patrick shares with us his vision as to what it takes to be the strategic and commercial CFO in an early stage tech business. We get to hear about what it takes to build the foundations for the finance function, deliver on the planning, and ensure that you're invited into the most value-added discussions with founders. He also leaves us some fantastic tips on what to pick for your tech stack. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Guy, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. No, it's okay. No worries. You've been a very active member of the group and actually, I think, one of our most active US-based members, although, of course, you are Dutch. Um, and um, we've always had great chats in the past and always found it very interesting to compare your portfolio work in the States and the work that I've done over here. Um, and so really pleased to you know get you on and talk a bit about your CFO career. Great, great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, very cool. So one of the things that um, you and I have touched on in the past is that, of course, you started your financial career more as a VC, didn't you? You weren't, you didn't have, have the traditional CFO route. You had this investor angle. That's correct. In, in fact, I, I started my career um, after finishing my master's degree in, in Holland here in Delft as a chemical engineer. Um, and fell very naturally into the hedge fund business, which then led me to New York uh, and into venture capital. And so it's uh, that that route was kind of falling in from one thing into other, learning as I went along, all things finance, given that I was a chemical engineer. And um, yeah, that turned into a 25-year career in venture capital and private equity, managing funds, administrating them, harvesting them, closing them in all kinds of deals. Yeah, fascinating. And, and and I'm I'm curious actually, is there is there one thing from the VC world uh that all CFOs should understand, right? Is there one thing that's not immediately obvious when you become a CFO that VCs do that, that you really should know? Yes. Um they don't actually care about the numbers. Um, which is a bit of a shock to someone who's traditionally uh educated in finance and accounting specifically and the accuracy around accounting. It, what investors care about is, first of all, transparency, truthfulness, um, uh, regular reporting that's consistent. And then once that's set up so they can trust the numbers, it's about what are your trends, what are your ratios, what are your rates, what are the metrics that drive your business model that ultimately bring you to this thing that we call finance and financials. Yeah, that so so I've I've seen similar things where I think people can join a new company and think that, for example, filing their kind of annual accounts is really important. But the investors don't really care about that. That's just admin. What they care about is these metrics that are about the growth of the business and what, what the business will be in three, four, five years' time. Yeah. Yeah, that that's exactly right. So it really is about with 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 investors, but also with your founders, it's about first of all building trust that they trust you as a CFO uh, and by extension that therefore they trust the numbers you put forward them as them as a CFO. Um, and then that when you go to the third step, which is suggesting things to them about how certain numbers um, relate to their business model, they start to think of you as being a strategic asset to helping build the company as opposed to someone who reports numbers. 
Yeah, and it takes some time to sort of earn that, right? Like you need to be in to understand the uh, business to get through those first board meetings to prove that you are the strategic, you know, commercial CFO who really understand these things and try to get that business to land on its forecast. That's that's absolutely correct. I, I say from my experience, you know, been doing 25 years of venture capital sitting on that side of the table doing everything from due diligence on portfolio companies to execution of the investments to helping them exit uh, and then flipping over to being one of the CFOs that VCs talk to for their portfolio companies. Um, it took me much longer as a VC to gain the trust of my founder, my founders of my portfolio companies, uh, that I had something to say about how they should run the business that I actually did know what I was talking about. And we're talking about a year, year and a half to sometimes never as opposed to being on the CFO side embedded with your founders and helping build a business with all the chaos that's in a startup, because by definition it's chaotic and by definition it's just you know, a sequence of errors until you hit the right thing. Um, that usually takes three to six months. But but once you have it, it helps accelerate everybody within the team and the company as a whole enormously. Yeah, that that that's a key lesson, isn't it? That that piece where you're doing things that ultimately are building trust in what is a very chaotic environment. Uh, and, you know, founders are not like, they're not regular Joes, right? These people are quite exceptional, quite different to um, a Joe Bloggs employee. And it could take a little while to figure out what what makes them tick and how to build trust. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's very interesting. And, and, and we should talk a bit about um, why you chose to go portfolio um like what what was the trigger in your life that, that that made you see that that was the place that 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 you should be it was a combination of a number of factors um one of my favorite words in the english language actually i have two favorite words in the english language uh, one is the word why uh, and the second is the, the word compounding and so i'd say that trigger was a compounding of multiple variables in my life both personal and professional um it was Firstly, I think the biggest trigger was that after having started my own fund, which at that point was like the fourth or fifth fund I'd done in my life, uh, going through it, I had just gotten completely fed up with working with LPs. Uh, it was no fun anymore for me. Uh, it doesn't matter how much carried interest you get. It, it just didn't feel right anymore. So that was about five years ago I hit that point. Um, at the same time, I realized because I am from Holland, and for the last 20, 25 years, I've been living in the United States and other countries um, and hadn't come back a lot to Holland for my parents or family. It was time to come back to Holland more and more frequently. And that meant I had to find a, a, a career or I need to switch careers that would enable me to work from anywhere in the world in any way or form. Uh, and the third one was I really was starting to get frustrated with my, my inability not my portfolio company founders' inabilities or their CFOs or their teams, but my inability to really add value to certain portfolio companies I saw um, that were doing better than other portfolio companies in my VC fund. And I wanted to spend more time with those. I wanted to help them more. I saw them run down certain dead ends and hit certain potholes. I'm like, I could have helped you not do that and waste time. Uh, and that's another thing that a lot of of CFOs don't quite grasp it. It's, it's not about wasting money that the VCs worry about. It's about wasting time and losing the opportunity and losing time to competition. 
So those three things kind of compounded over multiple years into this one thing whereby I said, I'm going to flip off the switch. I put the fund into harvest mode. It's doing great. It's going to exit in a while at about two and a half X for everybody. And uh, I said to my VC buddies up in New York, because at that point I was living in Dallas. I said to my VC buddies in New York, hey, do you have any portfolio companies that you're kind of scratching your head, uh, wanting to help them, but you're not quite sure how, you don't have the time, and you think that these guys are onto something big, uh, they might need some gray hairs, they might need a, a steady hand on the steering wheel, and they, they need a, a foot hovering over the brake, because that's what I do in essence for my VC friends. And, they, and one of them said, yes, that was the start of it about five years ago. And ever since then, you know, my pipeline has been full of referrals coming from VC friends um, who need that for certain portfolio companies. Yeah, that, that's a great way of explaining it. So that that why piece, that that's really the difference between being a CFO that can add value by solving problems that early stage businesses have, because you can really double down and unpick why the growth isn't happening or the burn is too high or whatever those issues are, which is completely different from what a VC will do, where VC, by the nature of what they're doing, they've hedged, right? So as long as some of the businesses in their fund portfolio are doing really well, that's okay to offset the ones that are not doing so well. And the VC yep. doesn't have the time or the inclination, perhaps, to unpick the whys on the ones that are doing less well. That's correct. And 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 the other thing that's important to recognize for CFOs at uh, portfolio CFOs or even full-time CFOs at high-growth startups is that the a VC uh, has a short amount of attention that they're willing to give at a three, four hundred percent energy level when you do get it, but it's it's it can be infrequent and it's it's very concentrated. And so what I mean by that is if you're setting it up correctly as a startup, you provide your investors with a monthly update, which goes across a certain standard format if you're doing it right. Often the Y Combinator one is used, which I think is great. Um, and I could touch upon that a bit later if you want. Um, but really where you get their undivided attention is when you have a board meeting. And I think without exception, including the portfolio companies that I had at my VC funds, the board meetings would be ones whereby the founders were reporting to me the numbers historically. And then we'd have five to 10, maybe 20 minutes to talk about the future plans that may or may not have been backed by data on why they're doing certain things. And so when I come into a, 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 a company, high growth startup, I say, guys, there are a couple of things we need to work on. First, you need to trust the numbers that I give you. That's one. Number two, you need to be able to answer every question a VC throws at you when they call you up at 8 a.m., 8 p.m. on a Friday night, right? Or at least have access to it within five minutes. And um, the third is that you need to take control of your board of directors meeting. You, you run that show. No one else does. Um, and that mindset flips. They're a little bit scared of it almost always because they're like, well, they might get insulted. I'm like, no, they're there to work for you. In the board meeting, they are the extension of your team. You need to ask them the difficult questions because actually they have a huge amount of experience they can tap into. A lot of things click. If you present it correctly, you can answer difficult strategic questions in a couple of hours that would other take, probably take months of experimentation to go figure out. So it's the communication is infrequent. It's intense, and I don't think it's managed properly to maximize the value add of your VC investors. 
Yeah, that that's very interesting because there is no training for how to run a great board meeting. And so it's very easy for founders to become a bit subservient to the demands of their investors and to use it as a investor update session, which it really isn't at all, right? It's the most important meeting in the business and uh, how you steer the business. And it sounds like, Patrick, that if there's too much discussion on the historics and not enough conversation about plans that people believe in, then then clearly something's out. That that's correct. And and one other thing to 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 give your listeners uh, something with is that, and this is because I've sat on the VC side for twenty years. Every VC has their favorite portfolio companies and their favorite founders. Right? It's like it's like children. No one talks about it, but it's true. Um, and that means that my job as a CFO for my startup is to ensure that my founder is their favorite. Why? Because then at cocktail parties and in meetings, they talk about my company, not the other portfolio companies, which leads to much faster due diligence, a very strong willingness to lead series A, series B, series C, and just much more interest in general. So it makes the life of a founder much easier if a VC walks away from a board meeting going like, wow, that was a great session. I understand what they're doing. I agree with what they're doing. I have a couple of tasks that the founder gave me. I'm going to execute on them over the next week. And I'm really very positive about this company. Yeah, that sounds like a whole a whole new podcast, actually, which is uh, how to make sure that your clients are among your VC's favorites. And, and actually, it's probably down to even uh, making sure that you're the favorite of the most recent money in because invariably the one those people that typically put funds in at higher at, at the highest valuation Correct. um but also they're the ones that tend to get the most say about introducing you to the next fund the fund that might lead your b round or your c round or something like this but that's a really really fascinating way of looking at it now patrick when we chatted the other week we um we realized that, that a lot of startup cfo members um think that having a portfolio career um, is an exciting development and, and it's something that would you know be be great for their experience and great for their lifestyle perhaps as well uh, and we unpicked a couple of ideas about um, what it takes to take the skills that you might have developed as a full-time FD or full-time CFO to become somebody who was portfolio versus or well you know, portfolio or fractional we should say um, what would your advice be to somebody that was beginning to think about making that 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 type of career transition um, there 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 are a couple of things you need to take into account here. Uh, one is that it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it, it, it took me, even with, with the network I had available to me, a good two years before I got to a point whereby each of the clients I had were companies that I believed in strongly, that they were going to be highly successful, um, that I liked the founders, I liked the work I was doing, and I could balance it all. Um, and so how do you, how do you start along that road? Um, well, I think the first thing is to familiarize yourself with, uh, the different tools that are available to us as CFOs and, and high growth startups to enable to actually fragment your time, segment your time, I should say, um, into the different work required for the different types of startups you have. So let's take an example. You have, let's say you have three startups, you're a portfolio CFO for, um, because I don't really like the term fractional, and uh, we agree with them, all right, you're going to get 15 hours a week from me uh, going forward for a certain amount of money, right? Uh, the reality is going to be one week is going to be two hours, the other week is going to be 40. 
And then if you have three of those companies that all want 40 hours for one specific week, how are you going to deal with that? Well, the answer is you can't, you can certainly work all through the night and into the weekends. It's not going to make the quality of your product any better. So finding the right tools that let you scale, which is the same as basically giving everyone who's asking you a question about the finances, the ability to go find the answer themselves in real time. Because keep in mind, when someone asks a question of you as a CFO, whether it's the a CMO or COO or an investor or a future investor or the, the founder, when they ask the question, they actually want the answer straight away. Otherwise, they're not asking the question. Um, so one or two day delay doesn't work. So finding tools that help you scale is one to start with and familiarizing yourself with those tools. Number two, I'd say is, and this goes for everybody in careers because you hear from parents all the time. I mean, really choose clients. You do your own due diligence on the clients and choose them for what you like to do. They have to fit the industry you like. Uh, they have to fit a communication style you like. They have to fit personality-wise you like. And I've made quite a number of mistakes in the first year with that. Um, and there's a way to do that. And then thirdly is to be um, really strict about your own time. Uh, or disciplined maybe a better word. Um, and that goes more towards, which is difficult to do, telling one of your founders, no, I, I can't do a call tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., uh, even though you know you have that time available to do a call. But no, because you need to work on work you actually need to work on, right, for other clients, including him. So they're always going to be pushed back. They're always going to be a little bit disappointed. You know, why can't you do that, Patrick? Because all of them implicitly and unconsciously think you're the full-time CFO. So those three things are starting points to, to get you going, and then it's learning as you're doing and risk management along the way to make sure you're not stuck in a contract for six to nine months that you ultimately end up hating after the first two months. So yeah, so helped. actually, that, that, that was one point, Patrick, that um, I was really interested to ask if you could expand on. So there's definitely a part of this where if you are somebody who likes to assess opportunities and to really uh, understand whether it's a match for you, and you mentioned like personality and the sector and things like, you know, communication style, um, there could be times where you are in process to take on a client uh, and you think it's a good one and you think it's a good fit for what you bring and you get a certain number of days in, you get you, you get a month in, whatever, uh, and you realize there's a mismatch. Like, how do you handle those situations? It's there, there, there are two ways I try to minimize those situations. You can never avoid them, I believe, uh, because everyone puts their best foot forward, right, when you're trying to hire someone. Um, first is doing your own due diligence quickly uh, on this specific founder you're going to be interacting with the most right what's his background um how does he talk to his investors and, and these things you find out by telling that person he or her hey send me over the last six months of investor communication you have right uh send me over access to your google drive with your doc your legal documentation in them and your forecasts in them uh I'm happy to sign ndas on those things um, is it okay if I talk to your co-founder? Is it okay if I talk to like the first person you hired or the last person you hired? And you don't have to spend hours doing this. It's really not that much time, but it's a lot you'll learn from how they respond to those questions, right? If it takes them five days to give you access to a Google Drive and two weeks to give you access or send you emails 
that are their monthly investor communication, red flag for me. I'm like, that means they're not going to be responding quickly to my stuff either. And they're going to be demanding stuff from me within 24 hours when their investors are demanding it from them. So this founder, it has too much going on in his head. I might not be able to help him or her. That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, for me specifically, I work with distributed teams and my startups may have a, a concentration of people, maybe even like 80% of the people in one place. Like one of my startups has it in New York, and then they have five or six people distributed around the world. Um, how exactly are they going to be communicating with me going forward? So my suggestion here is even if you're communicating really well in asynchronous fashion, which I strongly believe in, just as a side note, I communicate mainly with my founders, including my own team, through asynchronous videos. So either Loom or Slack videos uh, with spreadsheets on the screen, walking through them, walking through finances, walking through scenarios, walking through thoughts about management and customer acquisition funnels. Uh, but even then, you still want to be able to get on a call with them on a fixed day and time for if everything's going well, five minutes, and if things aren't going well for an hour and a half. Um, does that founder stick to that call? When he or she comes to that call, do they come with questions? Do they come with uh, an agenda? Are they prepared? I.e., do they take you seriously? And if all those things are positive, you're good to go. Very quickly, you'll find out when these things don't sync. When, for instance, I had one founder um, who was a lady uh, who claimed to know a lot about finance, turned out to not be able to read a P&L, which is totally fine. But hey, you should have told me up front. And we just didn't jive on calls. Uh, it, it was it was a mismatch, personality-wise. We both put our best foot forward in our courting, and it turned out to not be right. So what do you do then? Is what I do is I make sure I deliver what I promised to deliver in the first phase because I put things in two, three phases in the first phase of our project. And then I say, I can hand it over to my teammates if you want, or we can cancel the contract, or I'll go find you another CFO that fits better with you, but I'm not gonna leave you hanging, but I don't wanna continue this conversation, no hard feelings. So hopefully that gives a sense of how you can proceed with that. Yeah, that's that. That's a very smart way of kind of packaging it and dealing with the yeah, the, the the balance of outcomes, which is that that you want the company to be well served, but also uh, to get the best out of you, there needs to be a really good sort of connection and understanding about what you can deliver and that you can work as a team. And um, very, very interesting and insightful to hear about the things that you could expect them to share with you, where, where they're not having to do any more work, right? They're just having to open up couple of folders for their recent board documents or their recent financial plan and that you could infer what the team or what the founder would be like um to operate with just just based on some of the operational materials that they're sharing with other people yeah yeah exactly yeah that's that's super super interesting um that's great so look, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of learnings there for people and 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 this piece around um the strategic commercial cfo versus the CFO who might focus more on accounting and reporting. I think sometimes founders perhaps don't completely get the difference between those two. Uh, and you're very clearly the former. I mean, how would you, for a founder that's sort of looking to meet their first portfolio CFO and thinks it's the strategic flavor that they're looking for, how would you unpick the difference? It's a question of educating them carefully. Um, and I say carefully on purpose because 
founders that are doing well are either doing well besides their deep-seated doubts about their ability to do so, which almost all founders have, uh, or that they're just surprised at their own success. Uh, but in both cases, they put forward a face of someone who is uh, uh, willing to take action, and even if they don't know all the information. So you need to make them feel comfortable and help them understand what the difference is. So how do we do that? Um, Q&A, right, in the first couple of conversations, right, especially in the first call for me, where there's an eagerness and a willingness to talk. It depends on how they come to me. When I get them through referrals from VCs, very often, I'm talking about 80% of those founders will be like, if they're honest to me, they'll be like, look, my VC board told me I need a CFO. I don't know why I need a CFO. The numbers are being done by pilot or some other external service. Um, but I'm here because I promised. And in that case, it's important to help them understand is like, all right, the basics of any CFO is month end close that's accurate, not detailed, it's a huge difference, but accurate, trustworthy, easy to read. And that's a key point. A lot of founders aren't people who live and breathe spreadsheets like you and I do, right? They can't read them in that way. They get Jibber jabber, lots of sales, lots of numbers. They don't know where to look. They don't understand where to go. So how do you present in a way that they can read it, they get the information they want, and they get the insights they want? That's one, month end close. Number two is the ability to forecast. How, how long is this money going to last? I just got it. I got $3 million. I think it's going to last me six years. And I'm like, well, actually, it's going to last you six months. So again, how do you build that basics? Let them understand what the process is. Let them understand what's involved in it, which is, by definition, understanding their business model which they all believe they know, but most of them don't, and lead them through the process. He said, those are things I do. That's the minimum you get from me. If that's all you get from me, I'm worth your money. And your VC's off your back, right? Then they're happy. I'll help you with board meetings too. The commercial slash strategic CFO part comes in whereby then the second part of the conversation, you're like, on top of that, this is what I bring and this is what I demand that I'm allowed to do with you, the founder, Otherwise, I'm not interested in you as a client. And that second piece is, we are going to sit together with your entire team. We're going to understand how your business model works. We're going to understand if you have a leaky, funny customer acquisition funnel. We're going to understand if you have a thing called a flywheel, if referrals work at all, if, for instance, product-led growth works for you and your type of business model. All these things that lead to a company finding customers, acquiring them, engaging them, and then holding them. And then we're going to figure out, once we get customers onboarding at a rapid rate, how we're going to service these customers, what the costs are associated with it, what kind of scenarios we can run for you to scale your business so that you, the founder, don't have to think about these things, right? And very practical example, and then I'll stop, is uh, the, a great milestone for me with any of my clients is when they feel comfortable bringing me into a weekly uh, conversation with their closest advisors, which are often the co-founders. Um, and they say, Patrick, we're thinking of doing A, B, and C. We may want to go acquire another small company that's not doing well, or we want to go steal a couple of engineers from another company. Can we do this? What are the consequences? And I, as a CFO, strategically can say, well, the qualitative consequences are A, B, and C. Like, how's it going to look in the marketplace? Will you be pissing off VCs, et cetera? 
but the quantitative consequences I will have with you within 24 hours because I'm going to run that scenario through my model. And now you have numbers and know what to go do. That's a beautiful milestone to reach. And that's the difference between a strategic CFO and accounting CFO because an accounting CFO can't do that last part. Yeah, those are really, really strong examples. So it's very much sort of picking the commercial analysis it takes to understand and, and to measure if acquisition funnels are working, if there's evidence of a flywheel and this business would just grow because it's been set up to, by its very nature, to grow month on month. And to use sort of the credibility that you get from being able to advise on those topics, to be invited into um, most important meetings, the ones that are just a couple of the founders, maybe a couple of the C-suite, to look at things like M&A. Um, it's kind of all the groundwork to get invited into those conversations. And and for, for someone like yourself, Patrick, like how, how, how soon would you be able to have added that value so that you were invited into the room for those types of discussions? Uh, first, I'm going to answer it the way I hate being answered too, which is it depends. Um, the answer really is how how risk averse is a founder uh, in working with you and other people. So that's a personality trait. Uh, the less risk averse founders pull you into confidential conversations really quickly, but they have a very high expectation of what you bring. And if you don't bring it, they'll kick you out of that conversation really quickly again and sideline you. Um, in those cases, I, I tend to kind of feel it. I, I need to have reached two other milestones before I'm willing to be pulled into one of those conversations to just cover my ass, to be blunt. And that is, I need to have a month end close that's become automatic with internal reporting that is of value to my founders and my team. And they need to have acknowledged that that value is there. So that's a a weight off their shoulders. That's one milestone. The second milestone that needs to have um, taken place for me is they must have from me a 18-month forecast that's operational, which is a cash flow forecast, um, not just a an extension of what's currently in QuickBooks 18 months out. Uh, it needs to be actionable, and it needs to be something that they understand on a monthly basis. What's my burn going to look like going forward and why? What's my zero cash date? They need to acknowledge that to me, that they feel comfortable with that, and they understand how it's built and what, how it's run. And once those two milestones have been hit and that trust has been, therefore, uh, obtained, I'm willing to be pulled in to a more strategic, deeper conversation because once that happens, the expectation is that you also add value. Although we're not founders or co-founders, and although we almost never have the same amount of equity in a company as the founders do or the first hires, they do look at you as someone who is of that level once you get pulled into that meeting. Yeah, that makes a huge amount of sense. It's it's, it's almost that you've got to get like the foundations down, the kind of fundamentals of you've got a planning model that you believe in that can be quickly updated. You've got a reporting cycle that that, that gives you financial statements that, that make sense when you read them with the metrics in the business. And at that point, to be invited into those more strategic dialogues, you can add a lot of value, but, but but going there too early could actually be a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. That's uh, super, super interesting. So, Patrick, I'm, I mean, like, uh, with my background as well, also for many years in portfolio, it's really great to compare your notes. And so interesting because all of my portfolio career was over here in London and yours has been in the States. And so to realize that there's a lot of similarities that we don't really have um, 
big differences based on market. It's really similar situation on both sides of the pond. Um, but it would be interesting just to finish up on maybe a little bit of a chat about tooling, right? So you you mentioned earlier that um, some of the things that a portfolio CFO might look at in order to get the most value that they can out of their time um, is to make sure that, that you've got the right tools to allow you to be super efficient on the month end close or the reporting or the board pack or the planning model. I mean, I'd be curious to hear um, some of the examples of tools that, that, that you found to be very helpful. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and I do think it's, it's one of the most important ways that um, a CFO or portfolio CFO can scale him or herself uh, without turning over more hours. And so, uh, uh, just as, as context in the background, I, mean, I have worked with every type of tool you can think of and spreadsheet going all the way back to you know, 1992 in Quattro Pro. Um, and Excel is great. Love it. Google Sheets is good too, to a certain extent. Uh, then you have a lot of complex toolings that are out there, either for financial metric reporting or the actual uh, creation of forecasts and analy uh, analysis of your historicals. The one tool that I've been using over the last couple of years, uh, which is every, every year they become more my favorite, is a tool called Mosaic. And the reason I like it in the beginning, because I started working with the founders when they had just kicked off about three years ago, um, is because the founders are, is the X internal FP&A team of Palantir, who went through incredibly fast growth, very complex, very data-driven, heavy stuff. And they just were struggling all the time to hit their deadlines. And so they said, there must be a better way. Well, they found a better way. They've created it. It's called Mosaic. And that tool to me has now become so important for me to be able to scale my time and take on new clients. But more importantly, when I do take on a new client, to rapidly get to those two milestones, month-end close that works, forecast that works, um, that I've made it mandatory for my clients. I won't take on a client unless he or she is willing to go bring that tool to the table. Um, that tool does a number of things, but I'll, I'll keep it short and you can find it online. Your viewers can find it online. Um, it pulls in a QuickBooks or a Zero or a NetSuite. You name your accounting tool, it pulls it in. But it also pulls, pulls in your human resource information system, which can be a JustWorks or a Gusto or an ADP or even manual uploads. And that's important for headcount for grossness because that's 80% of most startups' costs. So accurately forecasting that and being able to change it quickly on the fly is important, including, especially when you have salespeople, bonuses, commissions, those kind of calculations. It also pulls in HubSpot or Salesforce, or most other CRM tools, which then enable forecasting of your top line revenue going forward. And because it all pulls them in, and it syncs with them multiple times a day, whenever my CEOs uh, log into this platform, without me having to do anything, they will see dashboards the way they want to see them, the metrics they want to see them, and if they're on a call with a potential investor, they don't need to pull me in or set up a second call. They'll just be like, you know, I'll pull up the dashboard. Yes, this is our pipeline right now. We've got 50 clients coming in. You know, 30 of those are going to start next month, 20 of those the month thereafter, et cetera, et cetera. So 
that's the tool I like the most. The underlying tools I like the most is QuickBooks because it's robust, it's universal. Um, then I like Zero. I'm not a fan of NetSuite. I think it's an unnecessary amount of implementation and it's overkill. Um, besides that, tools I use just for accounting purposes. Bill.com is good, old school. They've done a nice you know, workover since they were bought. Um, Glean.ai is a competitor to Bill, which is rapidly gaining market share. And I think personally think better than Bill.com. And then of course, credit cards like at least in the US, like Ramp or Brex or Divi, which basically are mini budgets that help us as CFOs be able to control the costs left and right. And once you have your financial operations tech stack rolled out and built the right way, you are implicitly delegating the management of all these small things that used to be falling onto an account to CFO's lap, cost hours and hours of work and reconciliation, checking numbers and asking questions. You delegated that to the people who are doing the actual work, who are making the expenses, and then things flow into um, your your overview panel, which in my case is Mosaic, in a very natural way, which enables me to answer questions really quickly when they do come in. Yeah, that's a great checklist. Uh, I think a lot of people listening will be jotting those down, thinking, "Yep, there's this, you know, tech stack there for you know any business that they might be supporting." So uh, that's super, super interesting, and uh, I'll definitely have a look at Mosaic. And if I, one of the things, Patrick, that you mentioned was that you got involved in looking at Mosaic when it was a team coming out of Palantir. So it was almost like a spin-out project from another startup. It's very similar to the birthing story from Slack, isn't it? Where um, Slack Slack was not the initial product. It was a internal tool that they were developing. And then they worked on it for a year or two. And next thing you know, it's the real thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you know, I remember talking to the founders, one of the founders, Joe, who at that point I didn't know was a founder. He just reached out to me and he said, can I talk to you? And my whole life, even when I was on the VC side of the business, I've always loved supporting entrepreneurs, helping them think through problems, often because as a VC or an experienced portfolio CFO, you know the answers they're searching for because you've seen it before. You can quickly help them move in the right direction. Um, I've been an angel investor all my life. So when he knocked on my door, I think it was thing LinkedIn, I'm like, sure, I'll listen to what you have to pitch me because if if it works the, say, the way you say it works, then I want to help you get this into the market because I've been dying for something like this for 20 years. And that's that's how we got started. And they are really good at listening. They have a very strong roadmap. Um, and they themselves literally know the pain of running finances in a high-growth startup. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, like, like I think a lot of the really successful SaaS businesses have been uh, – founders that understood the problem well and they were scratching their own itch when they developed the product uh and that and that passion can drive you forward for five or ten years yeah Yeah. it's not just a commercial thing they're just fascinated by producing the best solution for the problem um so yeah really really interesting story i will be checking out mosaic patrick um we could talk about this stuff all day uh it's a great topic like i'm a really strong advocate for people that work portfolio not 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 just finance people but hr people and a whole bunch of disciplines that i think are um brilliantly executed by very able people that choose to work on more than one business at once i think it's a great way to spend your time and to be involved in more than one thing and keep life interesting um but this has been a great conversation thank you very much for being on the podcast um it's been a great chat i've really enjoyed it 
it's been a pleasure, Guy. And uh, you know, the more I can do to help the next generation of portfolio CFOs become better, you know, for me, ultimately, the better startups are put into the marketplace. And because I invest my own money as well, you know, the better opportunities I'm going to see going forward. So a pleasure to help. Yep, that's exactly how we like it. See some decent returns. And I'm sure there'll be uh, one or two people in the group who reach out after this podcast. So um, thank you again. You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, visit our website, startupcfo.tech, to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions. And if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO group, follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.